The question is, in Matthew 24, verses 10 and 11, if the church is gone, go ahead and go to Matthew 24, if the church is gone, who is falling away? And what are they falling away from? And then in verse 12, whose love is growing cold? And in verse 22, who who are the elect? And then in verse 31, what is the gathering of the elect in the sky? And basically, through about four or five different questions, you you ask me, what is Matthew 24 about? I mean, seriously, there was, I think, a question on every single verse in Matthew 24. So what I want you to do is I want you to go online. Let's look at a couple of things here. Matthew 24, verse 1, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when His disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to Him. And He said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And my friends, several of you have stood on those stones. Because those stones today rest at the foot of the Temple Mount on the southern end of the temple. And you can see them smashed on the pavement, the pavement, this Herodian pavement smashed in by these massive stones that were thrown off the top of the Temple Mount when the temple was destroyed. It's one of the most, to me, remarkable archaeological finds in Israel to walk among those stones and to see them all over the place. And Jesus said, this is going to happen. He said it in about A.D. 32. It happened in A.D. 70. So I can tell you this much, as a prophet, Jesus was spot on. He gave a prophecy that happened immediately. Deuteronomy uh, 18 tells us that a prophet is proven true if he tells a true prophecy. If what he says comes true, you know he's a prophet. So Jesus tells something that we know came true, and then he lays out the rest of Matthew 24 so that we can know this is going to come true. This is going to happen. Here's the thing you need to understand about Matthew 24, I think more than anything else. You've got to keep this vital issue in mind. The atmospheric context of this teaching, Matthew 24 and 25, is Jewish. This is Jewish in nature. This is Jewish in focus. At this time, Jesus is talking to His Jewish disciples. He is a Jewish rabbi talking about Jewish things about things that will affect Israel. And he speaks in terms of the Jewish people. He talks about Jerusalem. He talks about Judea. He talks about Shabbat, the Sabbath day. He he talks about the Hebrew prophet Daniel. All of these things throughout Matthew 24 are Jewish things for Jewish people that he's talking about. So there's no application for the church? Oh no, there is. But remember the whole context is is a Jewish rabbi talking about Jewish things and answering Jewish questions by Jewish disciples. Who then in verse 3 they say, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and they say, Tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Three questions right there. When will these things happen? What will be the sign of Messiah's coming, your coming, because they believe he's Messiah of Israel? And of the end of the age. And then Jesus begins to teach. And so here's where I'm going to give it to you in a nutshell. Jesus in Matthew 24 does two things. And if you remember this, it will help you understand the passage. First, He gives a concise chronology. Beginning with verse 4, all the way through verse 31, it is chronological about what will happen at the end of the age. Okay? Here's what's, you ask, what's going to happen at the end of the age? Here's what's going to happen. 
And so he lays it all out. After that concise chronology that ends in verse 31, starting in verse 32 to the end of the chapter, he gives a call to readiness. And I think the confusion sometimes people get into with Matthew 24 is we read something from verse 36 and then we go back and look at verse 12 and then we read something in verse 42 and we go, how does this all work together? We're trying to make a call to readiness. We're trying to fit it into this chronological outline that he gives us. What do you mean, Rick? Watch this real quickly. Verses 4 through 8, he talks about birth pangs. This is everything that will lead up to the beginning of the tribulation. He doesn't talk about the rapture of the church, not yet, because he's not talking about the church. He's talking about Israel. And he's talking about what's going to lead up to the tribulation, which Jeremiah 30 calls the time of Jacob's distress. And so verses 4 through 8 are birth pangs. Birth pangs. Why does he call them birth pangs? Because they increase with intensity and with frequency. And you can read through those verses, you know, wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and kingdoms against kingdoms and famines and all these things. Jesus says, like birth pangs, they're going to get more and more and more. You're going to see them on the increase. And as they increase, you know you're getting close now to this time of tribulation. They lead up to it. Verses four through nine, sorry, verse nine through fourteen continues on, and and this is the beginning of the tribulation. He says in verse nine, they will deliver you into tribulation, and will kill you. You'll be hated by all nations because of my name. Who will? Israel will. Israel's already hated by all nations. But you will continue to be. And he says at that time many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Who? Israel. Now, also, within the context of the world at that time, people will be falling away. Someone asked the question, well, what about the church? Is that the church? No, the church isn't there. I told you on Sunday, there is no reference in Scripture that says the entire church falls away. There is one reference in Scripture that says the entire church departs, but not that lock, stock, and barrel, we all fall into apostasy. But many do here, and it's those who haven't yet understood Jesus as Messiah and are rejecting Him. And he goes on and, and talks about many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This is the gospel, or this gospel of the kingdom. Hey, the kingdom is a Jewish thing. The kingdom is a Jewish promise. This good news of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. Some missionaries will tell you, well see, something has to happen before the church is raptured. We have to preach the gospel to all the nations. No, the gospel will be being preached during the tribulation. Revelation 7 tells us God is going to send out 144,000 Jewish evangelists all over the world who will be preaching the gospel. Bible students, how many missionaries do we have in the world today? Do you know? 70,000. Right now, we have 70 plus thousand right in that range of missionaries today. In the tribulation, God's going to send out 144,000. He's going to double it. Because even though the tribulation has begun and the church has already been raptured, God is still trying to save people. He is still getting the word out. More on that in just a minute. So that whole section is talking about the beginnings of the tribulation. Then verse 15, he says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. 
And then he goes on to describe what happens. What is that? The abomination of desolation. Paul described, we just talked about in 2 Thessalonians 2. It's where Antichrist goes into the temple and declares himself to be God. That's the midpoint of the tribulation. Because Jesus describes that, and then he goes on to say, just a little bit further down, verse 21, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. My opinion, the first three and a half years Jesus refers to as the tribulation, the second half, three and a half years, he calls the great tribulation. First three and a half years are the wrath of the Lamb, the second three and a half years are the wrath of God. Okay? And again, it's very clearly laid out. When you put Daniel 9 and 11, Matthew 24, Revelation, the whole entire book, when you put all that together as we, you know, Lord willing will, then you see how simple the chronology is. So Jesus there talks about that sign of great tribulation, a sign very familiar to Jewish people. Again, Daniel 9, Daniel 11, the abomination of desolation. It involves a Jewish temple in Jerusalem. So again, very Jewish things. And then, verse 15, all the way that goes all the way down to verse 28, where he's describing what's happening throughout all of that time. At the end of verse 28, he says this, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. What does that mean? It's a proverb, a Hebrew proverb, that we believe meant a thing would happen when all the necessary conditions were fulfilled. So Jesus brings it right down to verse 28, and this is the close, this is the final days of the tribulation, and the vultures will gather where the corpses are, and if you look at Revelation 19, Jesus makes a comment about gather all the birds of heaven for the supper, the, the supper of God. And they're going to come and feast on the fallen and on the dead. And so that ties in to verse 28. But then, look at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken, and then the sun of the, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. That is the glorious appearing of Jesus. He comes after the tribulation, he returns and sets foot on the planet. Zechariah 14 tells us that. He establishes then his kingdom. So verses 29 and 30 are the glorious appearing. Now listen, because this was one of your questions. Look at verse 31. Verse 31, And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds and from one end of the sky to the other. So we said, okay, what is that? Who's the elect there? The word elect is eklektos in the Greek, used throughout the New Testament, primarily of Israel. Our translation of the elect is chosen ones. Who are the chosen people? Israel. Throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, you are my chosen people. I have chosen you. They are the chosen ones. And God has a plan with Israel that is not over yet. He will bring it to pass. Now I need to clarify this so everybody listen. I'm not saying that simply by being a Jew someone's just going to be saved. But that God will save a remnant of the people of Israel through faith in Jesus Christ. So they will believe in Jesus and accept Him as Messiah. And that will be 
their salvation. But God is going to keep the Jewish people. He is going to save the Jewish people. And, and this is where he does it. He gathers his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. And that's interesting. Why does he say it that way? He gathers his elect from the four winds. Well, the phrase four winds is euphemistic. We would say from the four corners of the earth. But in Hebrew thinking, we're to gather from the four winds. That, that means go everywhere. Get them all. So every living Jew that believed in Jesus, that survives in the tribulation, is gathered in to go into the kingdom. Well, then why does he say from one end of the sky to the other? And this is where I, I this is completely Rick's speculation. And I gotta make that clear. Don't, don't say, well, Rick said this, so it must be true. No, Rick said this, it could be false. <laughs> the gathering of the elect may also at that time include all the previous Hebrew saints who died in faith, but then are gathered in to receive their promise. Okay, so maybe this, maybe that point that all of the Hebrew saints who remember the captivity captive, those who died in faith before the cross, all led out by Jesus, and so are home with the Lord, and, and then we're raptured and we join them. But then at this time when Jesus returns, He calls all Jews, all the people of Israel, living and those who have passed away, whose spirits are now there, come back and enter into. Here's your kingdom. And they're all restored to the kingdom at that time, the final ingathering of the Jewish people. And I, it's interesting, Daniel chapter 12, verse 13, says, But as for you, Daniel, go your way until the end, and you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. So why would he get, go to the four corners? Well, he's gathering all Israel and to the end of the sky, all of Israel living and those who had died earlier. Okay? Take a second here. And at the end of verse 31, you can draw a line there because that's the end of the chronology. He has now answered their question, what are the signs leading up to him? Where's the end of the age? And what's the sign of your coming? He's covered all of that. Now, in verse 32, Jesus even says, Now, learn the parable of the fig tree. So now he's he's stopped this chronology. He's now giving them a parable so that they can know, have a sense of when all this that he described, now this is going to happen. Learn the parable of the fig tree. Uh, When its branches become tender, puts forth its leaves, you know summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize he is near at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will not pass away. The fig tree, what is it with the fig tree? What are we looking for here? And for the Jewish people, because he's speaking to Jewish people about Jewish things, the fig tree is a symbol of Israel. Throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, we see this happen again and again. America has the eagle, right? Russia has the bear. Canada has the maple leaf. France has the fries. We all have something. You know, that's our thing, right? The fig tree, even today in Israel, the fig tree is a symbol of the nation of Israel. They have the fig tree. Hosea chapter 9, verse 10. God says, I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree. The Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 13. The fig tree has ripened its figs. The vines and the blossom have given forth their fragrance. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. And then Isaiah 66, verse 8, tells us 
Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in a day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, went through pain, she also brought forth her sons. May 14, 1948, it happened. The fig tree began to ripen. The fig tree began to blossom. Jesus said, watch for it. Pay attention. Learn the parable of the fig tree. When you see this happen, this fig tree begin to ripen and puts forth its leaves, you know the summer is near. In the same way, you're going to know that the end is near. And Israel became a nation in miraculous ways in 1948. Which means what? It means we're on borrowed time. And he says, this generation will not uh, disappear, in essence, I'm, where's the, there it is, will not pass away until all these things take place. I submit to you that I still believe it is the, is the generation alive at the time that the fig tree blossomed. Well, that was 1948. How long is a generation? Jaden wants to know. <laughs> I love it. How long is a generation? Well, it could be 40 years. The Bible points to at 1.40 years, which means it should have happened in 1988 and we missed it. So, Yeba, you're not alone. The Bible also, God says in Genesis 15, He tells Abraham, your people are going to be in bondage for 400 years, and in the fourth generation they'll come back here. So God calls a generation 100 years. Which means anywhere from 1948 to 2048. Rick just said the rapture is going to happen in 2048. No. I said it should happen by 2048. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know exactly. And there is one other interpretation of that generation. Man, there's so much to tell you all here. One other interpretation is the generation also can be translated a genus, a people group. And it could be referring to Israel itself, in which case it would read this way, this generation, that is the Jewish people, will not pass away before all these things take place. So it may be God's way of saying, I'm going to protect Israel until it's all done. I think both are probably legitimate ways to look at that verse. So Jesus lays it out. He says this is going to happen. And then he really gets into some warnings from verse 36 through verse 41. He talks about being taken. And he talks about those who will be taken away, that is wiped out. And then he talks about those who will be taken up, that is raptured. The reason why he doesn't talk about it in the earlier part of the chapter, that is the rapture of the church, is because the early part of the chapter is not for the church. It's not about the church. But at the very end, he does make this very cool comment, then there will be two men in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. One will be left. And we've talked about that recently. Taken is paralambano. One will be received unto. And one will be left. And if you say, but Rick, it says Noah. Noah entered the ark and you know the flood came and took them all away. It's a different word. And again, we talked about that on Sunday. And I'm sorry to keep throwing you back to previous teachings, but I'm trying to move as fast as I can. Some will be taken out. And that Greek word is airo, which is what you see happening in verse 39. And then some will be taken while others are left behind. And those taken, those are received unto. Paralambano is the different word that's used there. He's talking about the rapture. At the very end, he gives this kind of cool 
little hint for us that that is coming. By the way, you might know this in your Bibles, you need to compare Luke 17 to Matthew 24. Because in Luke 17, that is Luke's what we call the Olivet Discourse. That's where Luke describes what Matthew describes in chapter 24. Luke describes the same teaching of Jesus in Luke 17. But he says something that's very interesting to me. In Luke 17, verses 34 through 36, he says that two will be in bed, one will be taken, one will be left. Then he says, two will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, one will be left. Which is slightly different than Matthew 24. And it's very interesting because one describes a rapture at night, and the other in bed, the other describes a rapture during the day. Which is the only way that a worldwide rapture could happen. Because it's nighttime on one side of the world, it's daytime on the other side of the world, and he's describing a global being taken. Okay? That's Luke 17. Very cool. So and then verse 42 through 51, the end of Matthew 24, is all about parables of readiness. Jesus is just saying, being ready. So that breaks down, I hope that helps, but that's Matthew 24, broken down. A concise chronology through verse 31, and then verse 32 through the rest of the chapter, teachings on being ready for that to take place. Got it? Question number eight, and there's only 32 of them, so we're just about done. <laughs> I think I think I can. Well, yeah, I, I'll move quickly on these. Will people who know of Christ, who have attended Christian churches and not trusted Christ as Savior, or people involved with cults—Mormons, Jehovah's Witness—will they have an opportunity to be saved after the rapture, or will their hearts be hardened? And the answer to that question is yes. They will have opportunity to be saved after the rapture, and yes, many of their hearts will be hardened. Um, here's what here's what you got to understand about that. God pulls out all the stops in the first half of the tribulation. God is still saving people, and you can read about that in Revelation chapter seven. John looks and sees this massive multitude of people. Says, "Who are they? I don't know who they are." The elder asks him, "Who are these people?" And he goes, "I don't know. You know." And the elder there tells John, "These are the ones who have come out of the tribulation. These are the ones who died for their faith." And there's a mass multitude of them. Uh, an evangelical harvest that some believe will be larger than any evangelistic movement in the history of the church. Huge numbers of people will be saved after the church has been raptured. Well, why? That's not fair. They should all go to hell then. Really? I don't, I don't want to have lunch with you. Because you're the kind of person who's going to make me pick up the check. God is a God of grace. God does not want anyone to perish before all to come to repentance. Not all will, but God desires that they would. And so in the first half of the tribulation, He pulls out all the stops. But listen, if you wait, if you say, okay, good, I just wanted to know if I'll have a chance to believe at that point. You are rolling the dice with your eternity. And it's one of the most foolish things a person can do. I'll just wait and see if this is true. God is asking you to trust Him in faith now. And if you can't trust Him now in the age of grace with the Holy Spirit in the world and in the church, with truth being taught, with the Bible being available to you, with with freedom to make that choice now, if you can't choose Him now, why do you think you're going to choose Him then? In a time of delusion and hard-heartedness 
in a time where the world is coming apart at the seams? How do you even know you're going to survive the first great earthquake of the tribulation? Read Revelation chapter 6 and look at what happens at the first part. And by the way, I'll throw this out to you also. Revelation chapter 6 may not be the first three and a half years. It may be the first year. It may be the first six months. All I know is it happens right up front. And if you think you'll be able to just, I'll just live through the first hellish nightmare of the first part of the tribulation, and then I'll make a decision if that, if I see it all coming down. When we were talking about this, I forget who I was talking about this with, maybe it was last night, but uh, I've had now three different Jewish tour, tour guides in Israel who will not commit to whether or not they really believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Guys who know the New Testament backwards and forward because they're tour guides. And, and I have asked every one of them, do you believe in Jesus? Do you think He is your Messiah? And the answer has been the same. It's almost a catchphrase. When He comes, I'm going to ask Him, is this your first coming or your second coming? And if it's the second coming, I'll say, well, I'm sorry, but I believe you now. Too late? Too late. You need to believe in Jesus now. You need to trust Him now. The facts, the evidence, it's all there, but it's not facts that saves anybody, gang. It is faith in Jesus Christ. The similar question to this is, will you still have an opportunity, is a really good question. If God's Holy Spirit, as we talked about on Sunday, if His Spirit leaves during the rapture, will people be left who are left behind be able to become believers? We've just answered that. Yes. Read Revelation 7. Yes, they will. Will they be filled with the Holy Spirit? I don't know. I don't know. Possibly. Um, I know that Revelation 7 talks about the 144,000 having a seal on their foreheads. And those who have the seal of God on them. And the seal in the New Testament tends to refer to the Holy Spirit. He is our seal of salvation right now. How do you know you're saved? You have the Holy Spirit. He is your seal. So... Possibly, I guess I would answer that question this way. Can a person be saved? Yes. Can a person be filled then with the Holy Spirit at that time? I don't know. I don't know. Perhaps individually He will fill people, but He will not fill corporately. And that is one of the miraculous differences that today, understand, not only, believer in Jesus, are you filled with the Holy Spirit, but we are filled with the Holy Spirit. We talked about Sunday, the restraining influence. We, with His Spirit, not only in us independently of each other, but together. There is, it's a dynamic of God's Spirit that I believe is greater and stronger and broader and more powerful with all of us together as the church. The Spirit is in the church, in the world. And He's in you personally. So as the furthest I think I could go biblically is to say that the Spirit may fill individuals, but there will not be the dynamic that we have right now of the Holy Spirit in the entire church. Well, how do you know that, Rick? Two verses. Or two sections. Revelation chapter 2 and 3, seven times we hear this phrase. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So right now, the Spirit is speaking to the churches. Suddenly, in Revelation chapter 4, the church is not mentioned Again, until chapter 19 when we see the bride. You will not see the word church mentioned a single time. What you do hear is this, Revelation 13 verse 9, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. 
And that's it. Not let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Just if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Because the Spirit is not here, working as He is today, and the church is not here. Question number 10, what can we know about the events on earth during the uh, the time after the rapture and the signing of the seven-year treaty covenant with Israel and Antichrist? Uh, In other words, what can we know about the tribulation? The answer, a lot. Question number 11. If you want to study out the tribulation, the Bible is rife with specific description of what will happen in that seven-year period. Read the book of Joel, the entire book, three chapters. Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 11, Matthew 24, as we just quickly went through. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, Paul describes it. And Revelation 6 through 19 describes in detail that time after the church is taken out and the tribulation begins. God doesn't leave it to guesswork. He tells us exactly what is coming. Now, question 11. Will we ever change? I like this. Will we ever change from the bride of Christ to be the wife of Christ? John chapter 3, verse 29. John the Baptist is talking and he says, He who has the bride is the bridegroom. The word bride is numfei. He who has the numfei, the, the bride... is the bridegroom. So he's talking about the church and Jesus. John the Baptist is prophetically saying Jesus has his bride. Jesus has the church. The numphae, the bride. When is a bride no longer a bride? It's an easy question. When does that happen? Huh? Yeah, after the ceremony, right? She's a wife. The bride becomes a wife. Am I missing something here? Right? You get married. So, so you husbands who still refer to your wife lovingly as your bride, well, that's nice, but that implies that you're not married, so you're living in sin. <laughs> you get married, she's not your bride anymore. She's not your face. She is now Greek, your gune. <laughs> Come here, goonie. No, she's your... The Greek word is gune, and, and it, it means... It's, it's translated woman... But it also is the word that's used for wife in the scriptures. She is now your wife. Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, let me read it to you, tells us, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Now the translators say that because the marriage hasn't quite happened. The marriage is about to happen, right? What's interesting is in that translation, the word bride is not numfe, bride, it's gune, wife. Your wife is ready. Even more compellingly, if you look at Revelation 21, verse 9, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the bride, Numfe, the wife, Gune, of the Lamb. There's the transfer right there. The one who was the bride, which is the church right now, will be called the wife of the Lamb, Revelation 21.9. Once the marriage feast of the Lamb has happened, yes, we will no longer be the bride of Christ. We will be the wife. Yes, guys, you will be the wife. And you better answer when he wants a turkey pot pie. Question number 12, at the end, will there, there will be a final battle when all the nations against Jesus will be destroyed at the Battle of Armageddon. 
Is there scripture that deals with all the unbelievers that will be scattered all over the globe at that time? Tragically, yes, there is. It's Revelation 19, verse 19. It says, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These were thrown alive into the lake of fire. What is the lake of fire? It's hell. That is hell. That is eternal which burns with brimstone. Verse 21, And the rest were killed with the sword who came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. And this is a lock, stock, and barrel. Everyone who stands in rebellion to Jesus at that time. It's the entire planet. They will not go into the kingdom if they do not have faith in Jesus Christ. Anyone who has rejected Him. And if you continue on down in chapter 20, verse 5 which is answering another question that was asked. It says, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. So everyone in rebellion to Jesus is killed or dies either during the tribulation, and there will be mass casualties throughout the tribulation, or at the end of the tribulation, if you still stand in rebellion to God, you will be killed. And that's all the dead. They will join, by the way, remember Hades? They will join those who are still waiting. Not those who were led out by Jesus, but those who are still waiting. They will join until the end of the thousand years are completed. And then, then he says in verse uh, 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the end of the thousand years. That was completed. And then down in verse 11, we come to what's called the great white throne judgment. And that describes after the millennial kingdom Judgment Day. See, the world thinks Judgment Day is just going to happen, and if you're good enough or if you're bad, then that's when it's going to be decided. No, no, no. If you die in Jesus or you are raptured, if you believe in Jesus Christ, your Judgment Day happened at Calvary. It happened at the cross, where your sins were paid for. And now by faith in His sacrifice and His blood, my judgment has been lifted off of me and put onto Jesus on the cross. There is what the Bible calls the judgment seat of Christ where believers come before Jesus and they are judged for rewards, but not for salvation. We have salvation now in Jesus. But all those who rejected Jesus, who never believed in Jesus and would not accept Him, what the Bible says is there is a judgment day. At the end of the millennial kingdom saw a great white throne, him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. I saw the dead, the great, and the small standing before the throne. So at that point, everyone who died in rebellion now comes before the throne of God. Now it's judgment day. Question 13. There are two groups of people mentioned in the great white throne judgment, those going to heaven and those who are condemned. What time period did they live in? And first of all, the question is incorrect. Okay, the question assumes that there are people going to heaven and people who will be condemned. I don't think so. In fact, two people groups aren't listed. One people group is listed, all the dead. That's not you. If you were raptured, you're not the dead. And it's not those who lived through the kingdom with faith in Jesus Christ either. It's all those who rejected God. 
who now are standing at the judgment seat of God, the great white throne judgment. This is very serious. And all of these are there. So one group of people, the dead, but two types of books. It says books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. So imagine this. God opens up a bunch of books over here, and then He opens the book of life. What are these books over here? They're the books of deeds. The books of everything you did, good, bad, whatever you did, it's in those books. And if you want to be judged by those books, you will go to hell. Because your deeds will come up short. And the Bible tells us, Revelation 20 verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There is only one way to be saved. And that is for your name to be written in the book of life, also called the Lamb's book of life. How do I get my name in that book? I want my name in that book. Believe in Jesus. That's so simple. It's so relational, isn't it? It's all about relationship. Believe in Jesus. And your name is in the book of life. And the book of deeds has no impact on you. You will not be judged by that. Again, your judgment already happened. That's wonderful. And it is tragic. It appears to me that no one will be saved in that judgment. No one. Well, then why would God do that? Because He is 100% just. He is completely fair. If you want to be judged based on how good a person you are, or think you are, you can be. That day will come where you can stand before God and say, Look, Lord, I know we've had our differences. But here's why I should be saved. And you can make your case. And God will say, all right, let's take a look. Do you remember doing this? Do you remember that? Do you remember that time? And and how horrifying. We're really good at forgetting our sin. God has it all written down. If you have not been saved, if you have not been washed by the blood, if you've been washed by the blood, guess what? Your book of deeds is completely blotted out. There's nothing there. Yay. Jaden, you're going to keep us here longer, aren't you, bud? The rapture has already happened. I need to, I'm going to come to a timeline with them, or you can. We will timeline this specifically for you so you can kind of follow it through. The rapture is the next thing that's going to happen. I believe on God's prophetic calendar, and that is we as believers in Jesus will go home. At some point quickly after that, the tribulation happens and runs for seven years. At the end of that, Jesus returns, sets up His kingdom for a thousand years. At the end of that is what we're talking about, that great throne judgment for everybody who has not believed in Jesus. After that, then you get to Revelation 21 and 22, which is new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. Question number 14, i got to ask this one. Will the earth end be destroyed by fire? Because God said it wouldn't be destroyed again with a flood. And the answer is yes. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. I won't read it right now, but that's where Peter describes the, the elements being destroyed by fire. The stoichia is the word. That means to the, to the tiniest of elements, everything will be destroyed by fire. It says the earth and the heavens completely destroyed by fire. Revelation chapter 20 verse 11 says, I saw the great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I think that's when the earth and the heavens are destroyed by fire. This throne judgment happens, God wipes that all out, and then he creates 
New Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth, and on into eternity we go. Last question, and then we will end on this one tonight. And um, you know what? The, the, the Micah 12 prophecy question, I will cover, maybe I'll spend like five minutes at the end of our worship night next week. Okay? We'll, we'll cover that. But I want to end on this. Question number 15. You've been very patient. Thank you all. The question is, how should we pray? How, how should we pray? And I, I love the question. <laughs> Evil is increasing in the world. This is the question continues. Evil is increasing in the world. And yet, the Bible tells us that this will happen more and more as we see the day approaching. So to pray against evil seems like praying against Jesus' return. I hope you're not suggesting we should pray for more evil. (laughs) Hey, if it's going to go from bad to worse, shouldn't we just be praying, Oh God, make it hell on earth so Jesus comes and takes us out of here. (laughs) This I pray. (laughs) It's actually a really good question though because it is a bit confusing. And Christians, especially pre-tribulation Christians, Christians who believe what I've been showing you and believe that the Bible says this is we're going to be raptured out of here and it's all going to break loose. We have been accused of longing for or desiring Israel to go into tribulation. Not so. I do not want a single Jewish person to go into the tribulation. Part of the reason we go to Israel is I like talking to Jewish people in Israel and trying to get them to, to see. So no, it's not that we want this to happen, it's that we know it's going to happen. So how then are we supposed to pray? I'll give you two verses and we'll, and we'll close on this. Psalm 122. Psalm 122, verse 6. Part 1 of, I believe, the command that we should... This is how we should pray. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, may peace be with you. By the way, the Jewish people consider verse 8 there, for the sake of my brothers and my friends, they consider the brothers and friends to be Gentiles. And in the psalm, they read it that way often. The rabbis will say, that's talking about Gentiles who pray for us. Well, sign me up. But but Rick, okay, if we're praying for the peace of Jerusalem, but we know Jerusalem is going to go through tribulation, then aren't we praying against the plans of God? No, we're not. Because listen, get this, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem is to pray as Jesus taught us. How's that? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Listen, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem is to pray His kingdom come. Because until His kingdom comes, there will not be peace in Jerusalem. Trump is not going to come up with the master plan. Unless, well, no, I'm not going to go there. (laughs) Obama's not going to come up with the master plan once they, you know, once he heads up the UN. I'm not going to go there either. (laughs) I'm just kidding with all that. But, gang, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem is to pray your kingdom come because that is when there will be peace on this earth. When Jesus brings it. Let's pray together. 
Father, uh, thank you for, Lord, the patience of my brothers and sisters going through all these questions and trying to get some understanding. And I, I pray, Father, you will give us understanding. There is a lot to know. I, I get that. But, Lord, I'm thankful. As we started, I'm thankful that you didn't just give us multiple choice answers. You gave us your word and you gave us your spirit. And in so doing, Father, you have drawn us into the most wonderful relationship we could possibly know. And Lord, I pray that more than answers to questions tonight, that we will all sense that. We have been invited into a relationship with the God of eternity. We can know you through Jesus Christ and through walking in your spirit. And that is your glorious promise. It's wonderful, Lord. And I am so thankful for that. And if we don't remember any of these little answers, and if we have to come back and restudy, that's fine. But may we, Father, know here and now how much You adore Your people, how much You love us, and may we learn to love You in return. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's stand up and sing together. And as soon as we're done singing, if you'll just give attention to the baptistry and we'll do this.